Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. For the last few months, we've teamed up with the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government to create the series Reimagine Chicago. And it's exactly what it sounds like. We've looked at public safety, schools, and investment in Chicago and how they could work better for you. Today, we're sort of taking you back to the beginning. We started Reimagine with a big question. How does city government work in Chicago and how could it work better? Before we talk solutions, we've got to check under the hood to look at two pieces of the engine, the mayor and the city council. Tensions rising after Mayor Lightfoot asked for emergency powers for COVID-19 expenses. No. But it's high inappropriate for members of the city council to be using profanity. I believe that we should have the ability to appropriate those dollars and that not be strictly an executive. People of Chicago did not vote for unilateral decisions, no matter who they were. If it was a local alderman or the mayor. Now, we all know about the big wigs, scandals and corruption. But how much of that comes from the way the council is put together and the particular powers of the mayor? For answers, we turn to Dick Simpson, a political science professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He was also alderman for the 44th Ward on Chicago's north side from 1971 to 79. And Simpson knows better than just about anyone why Chicago's power structure makes it different than most American cities. We have a strong mayor system in that the mayor appoints all of the key committees or department heads of uh, city government and many of the agencies like the Chicago Park District. We started as a town in 1833. We became a city in 1837. We've changed the number of aldermen we've had. Uh, For instance, at the Civil War period, we had 15 aldermen. Um, Later on, we had as many as 70 aldermen, so we've simply... We've never had a full city charter, but we've actually changed the structure through either state law or city council ordinance many times over our history. It's a matter for us to choose. So talk to us more about the powers that aldermen have uh, and how that compares to the powers that the mayor has. So the aldermen traditionally have been most concerned with services in their ward. They serve an ombudsman function. Uh, They make sure that the streets get swept and the curbs uh, are taken care of and that the streets are repaved and that the snow is removed and so forth. So the ombudsman function or the service function has been very important for both constituents and aldermen, and that's one reason we have 50 wards is that there are about 50,000 residents in each ward, and an alderman can be in charge of the services and making sure that they're properly delivered. However, the aldermen also have a legislative function, and that is to pass all the laws of the city. So the fact that the speed limit is 30 miles an hour on a particular city street, that's because there's an ordinance or law passed by the alderman. Alderman Laspada is an aye. Alderman Hopkins. Aye. Alderman Hopkins is an aye. In addition, the aldermen have to uh, vote on the city budget. We have a uh, city budget that runs about 400 pages, about 200,000 line items, and the aldermen have approved each of those expenditures. Now, often they don't do a very good job of looking at those expenditures and making changes, but they could. When you were alderman those years ago, how did you feel about your lack of power 
when it came to making certain decisions or your inability to get things done? First of all, the reasons uh, there was more difficulty was a political reason. Uh, the city was controlled by the political machine of Richard J. Daley when I was alderman and later Michael Bolandic. That had more to do with uh, the problem, but I actually felt quite empowered. I offered um, hundreds of amendments to the city budget, dozens and dozens of new ordinances each year, and they were usually voted down by the city council, but as the problems accumulated over the years, those uh, recommendations got adopted. So nearly everything I advocated was uh, eventually achieved, and that was true for other minority aldermen like Linda Prey and Bill Singer and Marty Overman. Are there additional powers that you think Chicago aldermen should have? I think the oversight the aldermen actually do is very, very limited. Yes, if they get a complaint, they might approach the mayor and try and get a change or approach a department head, but the oversight function isn't very good. One thing that has improved is many more aldermen in this city council, since they were elected two years ago, are offering broad-ranging legislative proposals for the good of the city. The city council votes on about 3,000 pieces of legislation in a given year. Most of them are things like stop signs and parking meters in their individual wards. But these aldermen, after the rubber stamp era following Richard M. Daley, Rahm Emanuel, the Lightfoot administration has spurred more aldermanic action in the legislative area than in any time since Richard J. Daley, except for Harold Washington, period. This is still the city of Chicago in the United States of America. That's right. And you don't have the right that not to recognize me. Right, and you don't have that and right chair, not to recognize me, sir. The gavel right now. You have, the gavel does not make you right, sir. The gavel does not make Professor, you take right. us behind the scenes of it. You didn't often see eye to eye with mayors Daley or Bolandic. So what did you have to do to push policies that you supported forward? Uh, we had to make a real fight on the city council floor and then win media coverage and then public support so that our ideas would prevail. We were in for the long haul. We lost the individual votes, but we won the war in the end uh, with Harold Washington's election in 1983 and 1987 and then Lori Lightfoot's election in uh, 2019 and still in office in 2021. We can't talk city hall without talking about aldermanic privilege. Um, For those who don't know, tell us what that is and whether that's normal, whether other cities have it. So aldermanic privilege is that uh, aldermen can usually hold up permits and certainly can deny zoning changes in their own ward simply by a request to the appropriate department or a request that their colleagues in the city council vote whichever way they want on the particular proposals. Usually they're most often related to development, but they could be other permits. That has been a cause of abuse. Most of the current cases that are going to federal court, like those around Alderman Solis and Alderman Burke, have to do with the misuse of aldermanic privilege or aldermanic prerogative, as it's sometimes called. Professor, can you give more examples of of how these powers play out in real life, Uh, something that maybe you've observed with the Lightfoot or Emanuel administrations? So the way aldermanic privilege usually works is that a businessman will come to an alderman and ask for a zoning change or perhaps will ask that uh, the building inspectors um, 
not uh, visit their establishment or the health inspectors if they're a restaurant. And the alderman will agree to do that, and the businessman will, in an envelope, uh, give the alderman $500 or more in a campaign contribution. In the case of Alderman Burke, it's alleged that what he wanted was a campaign contribution for Tony Preckwinkle of $10,000, and he wanted a business for his law firm, that his law firm would represent Burger King in all property tax issues in uh, Cook County. But it's a quid pro quo. You give me a bribe, and I'll make sure you get your zoning change or your building ordinance, and you'll be able to do the development you want. What do we need to know about how the strong mayor system has facilitated progress and hindered it? So the strong mayor system does have some advantages. It gets things done. One of the problems of our governments is that in Illinois we have 7,000 different governments with the power to tax. People in the city of Chicago pay tax property taxes to seven governments, and if they live in a suburb like Oak Park, they pay to as many as 17 governments. So when there are that many different units of government, it takes um, the political machine or the political power of a strong mayor to override them and get something actually done. And that's the strength of the strong mayor system. The weaknesses is it becomes dictatorial and autocratic. It was particularly vivid in Mayor Richard J. term of office, but with many of the other mayors who followed Mayor Daley. Don't be telling anyone in Chicago he'll be stepped down or anyone else, because as long as I'm mayor, no one will be stepped down. And no one has to be stepped down. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to be digging more into Chicago City Council and the role that aldermen play. Um, as we've talked about, you know, aldermen are sometimes thought of as many mayors of their wards and, and less as true legislators. Yes, that's always been the problem. Um, I used to joke when I was in the city council that there were only five or maybe ten of us who could read the city budget. It's a complicated document. It takes effort. The number of aldermen who offer legislation before the Lightfoot administration was less than 10. That is, they all offered legislation for simple things in their ward, but citywide legislation for the betterment of Chicago was not something they were really doing. They weren't a legislator. Now we have more legislators in city council, more controversy, and in general I view that as a good thing. This is a great history lesson, but I want to ask what this means for residents. What practical impact does this have on the average Chicago citizen? Well, I think we really need to go further. I think citizens need to be able to hold aldermen accountable. I tried to pass, when I was alderman, uh, neighborhood government ordinances, which would require ward assemblies to meet with aldermen monthly to help guide their actions, to have community zoning boards that met in the community uh, during evening hours and um, when residents could actually attend instead of having this sort of semi-secret hearings downtown. There are a lot of things we could do that would keep the aldermanic system and the mayoral system but would make them more accountable and different forms of neighborhood government would be the most important. The only two we have currently uh, very effectively in Chicago is the aldermen have an aldermanic menu, and in some wards uh, they are using a citizen-based hearing process to determine how to spend that one 
$1.5 million a year on local services. It's called participatory budgeting, and every alderman ought to be using that system and ought to be required to use that system. There are other ways in which we could strengthen our system. Uh, I'm, in general, favor more democracy over less democracy. More democracy over less democracy. That is UIC political science professor and former 44th Ward Alderman Dick Simpson. Professor Simpson, thank you so much for talking with us and also for helping us kick off our Reimagine Chicago series. I'm delighted to do it. Let's hear from another voice on this topic. Helen Schiller was an alderman for the 46th Ward from 1987 until 2011, and she's seen her share of clout, strong-arming, and political theater at City Hall. Helen Schiller joins us now. Hi, Ms. Schiller. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Now, we just talked to UIC professor and former alderman Dick Simpson about the way that city council is set up and about his experience of the role that, that that structure played in trying to push forward his own initiatives. So the question that we're actually trying to get to the bottom of today, Ms. Schiller, is how much of the success or the failure at City Hall is due to the way that the council itself is set up? What do you think? Well, I think that a lot of the way in which things actually play out has to do with the kind of particular political culture that exists in in Chicago that historically comes out of the old um, Chicago machine, which I think the Daily Machine was not the first of which, but was at least throughout the 20th and um, century and going to the 21st century had the most impact. So I say that to say that every there are 50 aldermen, and every alderman is elected in their ward based on whatever it is their argument is for what their job is. So each alderman really defines their job differently. If you look legislatively or if you look in terms of what the legislature has created and said Chicago's responsibilities are as a city, the primary responsibility that the city council has really is the budget. And the primary real-world responsibility that aldermen have is to be, and I think objectively is the first line of defense for people in their wards. And so different aldermen do different things. Some of that is based on their constituency, and some of that is just based on what the status quo is, which I think directs so much of what we do. As one alderman, I was one alderman among 50, and if I really wanted to have an impact legislatively, then I would really have to get support from, you know, at least 26 of the other aldermen and get that support against what was usually a very strong mayor who had an opposing point of view. The only time that truly wasn't the case was when I was first elected and how Washington was a mayor. But for most of my time, um, but certainly for the next 15 years, I was more often than not at odds. And you were alderman at the time when Richard M. Daly was Correct. mayor. When you didn't see eye to eye with the mayor, what did you have to do either publicly or behind the scenes to get something done or, or get movement on one of your initiatives? So that meant a bunch of things. It meant I had to figure out how to inter- interact with the city bureaucracy because that's where a lot of the work I needed done got done. And the political word out was, don't respond to her because she doesn't vote with the mayor. She votes against the budget, whatever. Uh, so that meant that I had to find some common ground with the people doing the work. And we had defined our work in my office as being the bureaucracy busters. We were the voice for our people in our community to be able to sort out, get through, navigate 
the bureaucracy and make it work for them. So we sought out those folks within the bureaucracy step-by-step that we could both show respect to and then receive assistance from in terms of getting to that person who actually made policy. And we did that over and over and over again and became very effective in getting work done. So I had my own method of trying to figure out how to do things. The, The main rule of thumb that I followed was I never gave anyone public credit so that the administration wouldn't come down on anybody that was helping me. But there was another aspect to it, which was building support for what I wanted to do so that I was very engaged in seeking out a sea to swim in, if you will, um, to build the support or to uh, tap into the inherent support that existed throughout Chicago as well as in my own ward for the initiatives I was concerned about, whether it was domestic violence or affordable housing. So I spent a lot of time in helping, facilitating, contributing to building a sea in which other aldermen could join me in swimming in in terms of making those changes. Ms. Schiller, are there additional powers that you think Chicago aldermen should have? When I first was alderman, there were many more things that aldermen had legal authority to weigh in on. For instance, initially when I was first alderman, it was required that we vote on and approve the Board of Education budget. So it's been a moving target is really my point. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. But I think that it would be actually helpful to – it's a different council than it was when I was there. And I think that those answers in large measure need to come from the aldermen who are attempting to challenge the status quo in terms of problem solving and looking at the barriers that they're meeting in that regard and identifying real solutions to that from a broader point of view. I have to just give you one other example that I think is really important. We often think we're solving a problem and we're not, or we say we're giving someone power and we don't necessarily, and I think the police contract is a really good example of this. When it was instituted in 1982, I think the first contract, 82, 83, Uh um, one of the agreements and one of the clauses in the contract, I believe, either immediately or in the second contract, was on the one hand that the city council needed to approve it, but on the other hand, changes of substance couldn't be made to the contract unless they were made within a very short, narrow period of time. And the council rarely got to see the contract before that narrow time was up. Therefore, the council, we were always told we couldn't make any changes, but we had to vote. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is exactly what should be avoided when determining the responsibility of city council versus the mayor or the executive branch. The city council, if they're going to have responsibility, that should be clear, it should be transparent, and they should be able to exercise it. That's former 46th Ward Alderman Helen Schiller. Thank you so much for talking with us and for just helping us pull back the curtain a bit. Thank you. Let's hear now from one more voice on this topic today. Reimagine Chicago is a collaboration between Reset and University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government at the Harris School of Public Policy. And the center's director, Will Howell, joins us now. Hi, Will. Hi, good to be with you. Remind our listeners why we're doing Reimagine Chicago and, and why we wanted to focus on key institutions and systems, including city council. Well, in the aftermath of Trump's presidency, which was so disruptive, and we hope we're pulling out of this pandemic, it seems like a time when we can pause and take stock of how we come together as a city, to the extent that we come together as a city, and to reflect upon the institutions that shape our civic and political lives. And it's not just sort of abstract things that are motivating us. We really want to drill down 
and identify how these institutions, today we're talking about the mayor and the city council, how they shape our ability to solve problems, how they get in the way, how they sometimes facilitate problems like corruption. Um, we want to ask foundational questions with the hope of then reimagining our city and, and, and to think anew about how we might productively move forward. And this is, of course, about more than just some suggested tweaks here and there or even reform. This is a full reimagining. It's a proper reimagining, right? So, why, are, why are we going um, so big? Well, look, you just had a series of conversations in which you said, look, we've got 50 city council members that, are in, that, are, that serve individual wards all across the city. And we take that as given. And then what we tend to do is to say, okay, here's an, an ordinance we might want to tweak here or a budget line that we might want to change there. But we might back it up and to say, well, why do we have 50? I mean, that seems like an awful lot. Many other cities have far fewer. Why do we have ward-based elections versus at-large elections? And if you think about problems of corrupt, corruption or you think about our challenges to come together as one Chicago, the, the fact that we have a city council that's structured in this way is not obvious. And in, in some ways, it warrants sort of reconsideration and maybe reform. Right. Yeah, New York City has 51, but they've got three times the population. Right, and Los Angeles has 15, which has, and it too has a much larger population than does Chicago. Um, and, and so I think a lot of the problems that we're accustomed to talking about are the challenges we face and why we can't, you know, bridge our differences or make headway on issues involving segregation or crime or public safety or education are born not just of a lack of ideas, but an inability to kind of structure institutions in ways that facilitate problem solving. And, and the big reimagining that we're doing together is, is an effort to try to think anew about how we might, again, come together in a more constructive way going forward. Well, you just heard our conversations just now with former city council members Helen Schiller and Dick Simpson. Both of them talked about ways that they had to navigate city council while they were minority aldermen. You know, making alliances, working behind the scenes. Helen Schiller actually mentioned seeking a sea to swim in, um, but still often getting shut out legislatively. So to your earlier point, Will, do you think that Chicago City Council is set up in a way that best serves its residents? Well, that's the conversation I'm hoping we can have collectively. I think that there's reason for real concern. Um, democracy is messy. It will always be messy. Trying to build coalition in coalitions in support of different kinds of change is, is always going to face an uphill struggle. Um, but we also heard Dick point out that, you know, the size of the city council has not been fixed once and evermore. It's not handed down from on high, and it wasn't, you know, it didn't start at 50 and remain at 50. It has changed dramatically over time. And so just as we kind of think about um, the immediate challenges that our city faces, we can also think anew about how we want to structure these institutions. 50 isn't, doesn't, it doesn't have to be 50. We could rethink about what that proper number ought to be. What are you hoping overall that we, the listeners and, and city leaders, learn from this series? I hope that we start thinking a bit more expansively about what's possible for our city. Um, and that we open up space in our politics to begin the hard work of fundamental reform, the sort of deep reform. So much of when we think about the problems that we face are about what's immediately in front of us. What is, you know, what is the, de again, what are the details of the police um, stop that goes horribly awry, rather than think backing up and saying, all right, how do we think about um, unions and contracts and 
the incentives of, uh, that police face as they, as they try to advance professionally. Um, and so, you know, when we turn to issues involving, you know, public safety, we're going to be able to surface those kinds of questions. Those kinds of issues don't get enough hearing. Um, we should be squaring our, you know, training our attention on them with an eye towards, again, thinking anew about, about what's possible in our city and putting us on a more productive uh, pathway forward. That is Will Howell. He's director of University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government. Will, thanks so much. So good to be with you, Sasha. And that's today's Reset. All month on the podcast, we're bringing you our series, Reimagine Chicago, where we ask, how does Chicago work and how could it work better for residents? We're tackling city government, community investment, public safety, and schools. As we roll out this special project, we'll still bring you the weekly news recap every Friday. Thanks for listening. And take a few seconds to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.